good job is gonna knock off work tonight. A good job is gonna light those candles bright. Good job is gonna rest up with my friends. Study Torah till the Sabbath ends. A good job is good job is good job is gonna take out time and rest. Good job so that I can be my best. Good job tonight the family dies, making blessings over the wine. A good job is on Shabbos, on Shabbos. Gonna open up the gates up wide on Shabbos to welcome the Sabbath bride. Get on down to shoe, study up on the golden rule. On Shabbos, good Shabbos. On Shabbos, we unload our woes and cares. On Shabbos, join the congregation in prayer. On Shabbos, you can't put that phone away. It can wait till another day. On Shabbos, good Shabbos, on Shabbos, good Shabbos, Shabbos, Shabbos! Good Shabbos from Mark Rubin, Jew of Oklahoma. His new album is called The Triumph of Assimilation. Welcome to WLRN and thank you for being here, Mark. Oh, what a pleasure. Now, for those who aren't Jewish, what is good Shabbos? What is a good Shabbos? A good Shabbos is a time to take time out and rest. It, it doesn't. You don't have to be religious at all to, to know that it's it's absolutely important for the mind and the body to you know the way that we live our lives right now. We're just completely um, just we're just uh, battered by life and by technology. And wouldn't it be just wonderful to take that cell phone and to take that iPad to take that cable TV? and just turn them off, I mean, for like 24 hours? Would it kill you? You know what I mean? Like, what a, what a wonderful concept. And I mean, for Jewish people, this is something we've been doing for millennia. And it, uh, it helps. Is this what you say on Fridays? Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's the Yiddish version of Shabbat Shalom. It's, it's something I grew up hearing when I was a kid. It's something I say all the time. Other people say Shabbat Shalom, which is Hebrew. But I kind of grew up around people who spoke Yiddish, and uh, uh, at least at shul, which is which means synagogue. There we go, another Yiddish word. Shul and synagogue. So uh, I, I'm I'm in South Florida, so a lot of Jews here in South Florida. So I, I think they could relate to a lot of what you're saying. But you grew up in Oklahoma. How did your family find yourself in Oklahoma? Well, it's it's uh, you know we are a diasporic people. My family came through somewhere other than Ellis Island, is the story, probably through Galveston, like a lot of Jews who came through the Midwest. Uh, they settled in Chicago, but my grandfather ended up a, a, a cowboy and a silver miner out in uh, Arizona. And so that's where uh, a lot of my family roots are. And then my father ended up in Oklahoma, along with his brother. His brother was a, a commanding major at Fort Sill in Lawton, Oklahoma. And my father took a job at Oklahoma State University 
in Stillwater, Oklahoma, and that's where I was born and raised. And then eventually he became uh, the Hellel director at uh, the University of Oklahoma in Norman, Oklahoma, because he was on the search committee with the B'nai B'rith trying to find a rabbi to take that spot. And uh, in the course of something like four years, they had 10 rabbis come and go there because uh, it's a rough gig trying to be a rabbi there in Oklahoma, you know, especially when you're, when people are searching for your horns and asking you why the Jews killed Jesus on a regular basis. So uh, it's a rough gig unless you're from there. And so uh, my dad ended up being the community leader, I think is the word uh, that they used for him back then, um, or the, the small R rabbi, the rebel. He ended up uh, being the, the guy who led services there at the Hillel Foundation until his passing. I, as I said, grew up in South Florida, but I had a job out west one summer. Uh, I guess I must have been 19 years old, and I met uh, some people who were looking for horns on my head, and I, I, yes. I, I had no idea what they were talking about until, until I realized it was it was a prejudice of, against Jews. Yeah, it's uh, it it was real. I mean, it was real. We grew up with uh, anti-Semitism and xenophobia, you know, knitted into the culture. I'm not going to say that everybody I grew up around was a xenophobe and a racist, but uh, a goodly goodly portion was, and some of that was just knitted into the fiber of, of the culture, as I said before. And when people are raised that way, heck, they don't know any better. You know what I mean? And for a lot of people, we were the only Jews that they knew. And uh, so you're on a 24-hour race representation and education program. That's got its good good side, and it, boy, it's got its negative side. Because, for instance, my dad was really insistent that whenever there was a Jewish holiday, we get to be in the public paper just like they would be for Easter or, uh, you know, any of the, uh, the, the Goetia holidays. And so what that meant was is we'd be seen there'd be a picture of us and it would say Bob and Susan Rubin of 727 Nancy Lynn Terrace, because it was, that's what they used to do back then. They put your home address. Well, heck that let the clan know exactly where you lived at that time. So the, the next day after you had your picture in the paper, you were sure to have the bricks through the window. And that, that was a regular occurrence. My dad used to joke that he wanted to give these guys uh, a lesson in how to paint a swastika correctly because they always spray painted the swastika backwards. You know what I mean? He was like, start at the top and come down the other way. You know, he, he uh, I mean, that was his, you know, his little sardonic joke about it. But I mean, it got hairy sometimes. We had a cross burned in the yard on one occasion. I mean, it's, it's hard for people to fathom. This is 1975, 1976. And when I was a kid, even younger, say 69, 71, the public pool was restricted, not just to Jews, but to Catholics. I mean, this is, uh, you know, uh, so any kind of brown person, you know, not only were we one of the few Jewish families and a very public Jewish family in our small town, we actually even had an, uh, an adopted American, Native American brother. So here we were, the Jewish family with a brown kid, you know, so we were, we were real, real targets <laughs> in that environment. I think we were kind of happy to leave Stillwater and move to Norman, which was uh, closer to Oklahoma City and a little more cosmopolitan. And so things moved out a little bit. But, you know, it's it was still uh, it was still in the machine. It was still knitted into the machine. And uh, I don't mind telling you, um, 
to quote, you know, my, I'm still working it out with my therapist. You know, I'm, I'm 55 and I'm, I'm still working it out, you know, and uh, a lot of that, I mean, a lot of it comes through in my music and what really comes through in my music and kind of in the message of my music and what I'm doing is I can't believe we're back, back there again. Like, I really can't believe that these same problems that I encountered when I was a kid, now the kids are encountering themselves now. And I, I just thought I was, I'm just so damn heartbroken. I mean, it makes me cry when I think about it. I, I get emotional. I mean, I literally get emotional when I think about it. And I, I hope I don't get emotional about it right now, to be honest with you, because I'm, 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 a, I'm worked up about it. And like I said, I'm, I'm more than just a little bit damaged by my experience. And that's what led to this, this show, this idea, this concept, the Jew of Oklahoma and uh, my point of view and the music that I'm making. Mark Rubin is on the line. His new album is called The Triumph of Assimilation. And you call yourself Jew of Oklahoma. When did that start? The seed really came from uh, kind of a, the first bold-faced bit of anti-Semitism that I experienced in the music world. I was kind of, I had been playing music, uh, especially in traditional bluegrass music, and I had a band called Bad Livers, and we were touring around. And I had, I, there was a point where I, I felt like, you know, I'd been playing bluegrass music most of my life, most of my professional life, and I was considering a move to Nashville to kind of make the jump into uh, pro professional traditional bluegrass, which I really felt uh, I had earned my, earned my place in. And I was on the tour bus of a very well-known and beloved bluegrass musician who is still out there, still beloved, <laughs> very well-known. I will not share his name because uh, it's not fair. But I said to him and his band, I said, hey, boys, I'm thinking about, you know, coming up here to Nashville and making a go as a trad bass player. And, man, you could have heard a pin drop on that bay, on that bus. And I kind of looked around a little bit and I go, did I say something wrong here, boys? What's what's going on? And the band leader just looks at me, this man I have intense love and respect for, turns to me and goes, well, you know, Mark, we already have a Jewish bass player in Nashville. And I was like, what? And I think he was referring to Mark Schatz. Um, he he, did he a, didn't mean anything mean by it, though, did he? I couldn't tell. Um, and then I, I look at him and I go, sir, am I catching you right? Are, are you saying what I think you're saying? And he goes, well, he puts his hand on my shoulder and he goes, well, son, we hire out of the church parking lot and I don't reckon we'll see you there. And it was like a thunderclap. And just between you and me, it, it was like a brick going through my window. Did you move to Nashville? Well, no, I, there was no point. Uh, you know what I mean? It was, it was like the thunderclap. It was like, you know, uh, that door is closed. You know, there was no point in me fighting this system, you know, especially when I had it from the horse's mouth. Now, looking back on it, how could that man know my situation? How could that man know my story? You know, he was basically just reporting 
you know, this is, and this was back in 1998. And I know that the world has changed quite a bit. And that situation has, is probably not the case anymore. And also I was trying to enter the most traditional bluegrass. You know, it wasn't like I was going to be a new grass performer or something like that, where, you know, the, the bet that's a different situation, but he was right in a lot of respects, a lot of, you know, 20, 25% of traditional bluegrass is, is, is happening on uh, gospel stages in churches and such. And so having to explain someone who's not washed in the blood, um, it would be, would be difficult at best. So, uh, you know, looking back on it, I understand, but it was very damaging at the time. It was, it was, it, it was a real soul crusher. And what it did was it really kind of, it was the first time that my background, and I'm not like a, I wasn't practicing, you know what I mean? I didn't wear a yarmulke. I wasn't Shomer Shabbos or anything. I assume you played gospel music as well. Oh, I'm, I have, you know, hold on. Um, are you going to, you know, are you going to be a saint on that shore? Are you going, you know, heaven sometime? Man, I, st I sang that stuff in elementary school. I was raised singing gospel music. Uh, my band Bad Livers, um, we, used to, we used to do all of our harmony singing from the Church of Christ hymnal. Uh, this is stuff that I was literally raised with. This was the music, not of my nature, not of my Jewish nature, but of my nurturing. It was literally music of my honest culture that I was an expert in, that I felt that I had earned my place in. But it had been explained to me very clearly that that was not going to be the case. And that at that moment, I felt that I had lost my home, that I was now, it is very clear that, oh my God, I have to wear the star now. To represent. You know, you know I had been doing race representation as a child, but as an adult, I had like earned my stripes in my own culture as a country musician and as bluegrass music and then never in Texas in particularly. And I think it has, it speaks well to Texas culture in Texas. It had never been a barrier to my moving forward in my career. It wasn't until I got to Tennessee and was dealing with the traditional bluegrass guys. Was this an, an issue? And it really was a kick in the teeth, but right about the same time, is when this fellow Henry Saposnik got a hold of me, and he was a big fan, a banjo player, and a big fan of uh, my band Bad Livers, and he introduced me to the Yiddish cultural revival, which has been misnomered klezmer music. And he invited me with open arms and said, "Come on home, you know, to Shuva. You know what I mean? Like, there's a lot of us over here who are re-examining our uh, Yiddish roots, and you would be more than welcome." And the thing was, is that I had very, very, very little exposure to Eastern European Ashkenazic Yiddish language and Yiddish culture growing up there in Oklahoma. Basically, all I had was this one milker, this one milk farmer, milk farmer, uh, this one dairy farmer, <laughs> milker, Yiddish, um, this one dairy farmer that my dad used to send me to. And I used to go milk his cows and, you know, drove the tractor and, and uh, helped him out at his farm once a week on Sundays because everybody else, the whole town was closed down on Sunday <laughs> because of the blue laws. 
So he couldn't do anything on a Sunday. So he would send me to this guy's dairy farm so that I wouldn't be a city boy, number one. And number two, to help out this old Jewish man on his farm. So he would speak Yiddish to his wife and the cows. So that was it. <laughs> that was as much old school Jewish, old Yiddish that I was in. That and the old men singing at the, at the shul in Oklahoma City, who were old Polish, Litvish, and Galicianer, and uh, Romanian and Hungarian Jews who were shopkeepers and farmers, and they would daven, they would pray, they would daven in this old, old, old Jewish way. So I had this dichotomy of being completely removed from the mainstream of Jewish culture, but the little tiny strands of Jewish culture that I had were like tevya. You know what I mean? <laughs> they, were, they were like little, and like, unlike Jews who grow up in, in deeply Jewish environments, I held fast to these things. You know what I mean? They're like these strands that you just like you're grasping at. And so you hold fast to them and you really, really appreciate them, maybe in a way that other Jews don't. So when I found Klez Camp is what it was called. I found Klez Camp in 1998. It was just like, holy cow, it was this Yiddish brigadoon that happened up in the Catskills. And I met all of these other people. And what was fascinating is that there wasn't anyone like me. There, there were, they didn't have my accent. They didn't come from my background. And they were totally welcoming and warm. And I, I, I established a foothold in that, in that scene. I became the house bassist and tuba player for basically all of the major bands that were operating and, and ended up, and I still do to this day, uh, have a career in the Yiddish Renaissance as both a, ba a performer, an educator. In fact, just last week, I taught at the Jewish Music Institute London their uh, online courses, but normally they would fly me over to London to do that. And this is a whole career that I have, and I've, I've had uh, since then, over 20 years plus, in Europe, almost exclusively teaching and playing uh, Jewish music and representing uh, Ashkenazic Yiddish culture to Europeans. And it's, it's been an aspect of my career that has been completely, it's completely unknown to uh, uh, my American audience. Completely unknown to me. Uh, I don't know you personally, but I've known Kill Billy and I know the Bad Livers as being like progressive folk punk, very innovative in, in the music that you did. And it was almost as if the audience, you were searching for a new audience because it didn't really yeah. fit into folk. It didn't fit into punk. What, what happened to those bands? Well, Kill Billy was a wonderful band and, and uh, we, we kind of parted ways early on i kind of founded that band with some guys because not only was i playing traditional music i was very very influenced by punk rock music especially the socio-political end of it not so much the music end of it necessarily but the anti-authoritarian and anti-fascist end of it that it was attached to the culture that it was attached to so when i moved to dallas i found country musicians who had punk rock aesthetics and we kind of all found each other and we kind of banded together in this band Kill Bill. And that was the first time that I was able to meld both the musical aesthetic of the punk rock that I had been playing 
along with the traditional music that I had. And so we had this magical little confluence that created the band Killbilly. Wonderful band out of Dallas. I love them, have nothing but good things to say about them. We had an unfortunate situation of fiduciary impropriety, which led to my departure. But one of the things that I will always thank them for is the fact that they hired a banjo player from Austin who was particularly wonderful. And he encouraged me to come to Austin and join him in a band. And that was Danny Barnes. And so that's how I met Danny Barnes. And we formed the group Bad Livers when I moved to Austin. And you're absolutely correct. The thing about Bad Livers was we were interested in taking American traditional music and these um, traditional instruments, upright bass, fiddle, banjo, and creating something new, much in the same way that our heroes have created something new by taking something from the old. The way that, say, Bill Monroe had taken the mandolin, which was an instrument no, not many people had thought about beforehand, and taken different elements of American music and put them together and created bluegrass. He was a hero of ours. Another hero of ours was Bob Wills, who had taken these instruments and taken different diverse parts of American music and put them together and created something new, Western Swing. It was fully our intention to do something similar, was to take what looked like divergent or disparate versions of American folk music and kind of put them all together, take our personalities, which also had kind of punk aesthetics, and make this melange that was natural to us and create something that was new, a bad liver music. And I would say, and I'm, I don't feel like I'm going out on a limb here, we did such a thing because in our wake, there were many, 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 many other bands who basically came in our wake. There was a, a guy, uh, Jeff Austin, from the uh, Yonder Mountain String Band, the Shalom, who's told us, he said, you know, not many people bought our records, but everybody who bought our records started a band. You know, I'll take that. We may not have made a lot of money, but we were very influential. And so I'll, I'll, I'll take that. Mark Rubin, his new album is called The Triumph of Assimilation, and Mark, call, Mark calls himself the Jew of Oklahoma. And this album, too, has new music on it as well. You're taking these songs and, and putting new music into it. How, how have you explored the Jewish music that way? Well, one of the things that I think is really, really important, you know, I've been working in, in a primarily Jewish milieu in Europe, for instance, and one of the things that I've been exposed to is poetry, beautiful, beautiful songs and poetry by Yiddish poets, one in particular, Mordecai Geberti. In fact, about 20 years ago, I recorded one of his tunes called S. Brent, because I find the message to it to be so important and so prescient, more prescient today than ever. And the song, I've performed it many, many times in Yiddish, and it gets performed all the time. It's a beautiful, beautiful song. But the truth is, is that the people who need to really hear this, they don't speak Yiddish. You know, <laughs> they, you know, the next one's Yiddish. The people who really need to hear these messages speak our language. They speak English and they don't necessarily want to hear it with the Klezmer band. They want to be, they want to hear it with the same kind of music that they're familiar with. So 
I felt that I was uniquely positioned by being a Southern American musician playing what's, I guess, is described as Americana or bluegrass or old time music, that I could, I could take these beautiful, this beautiful poetry and try to trans adapt it, not necessarily, you know, translate it, you know, in slavish translation, but to trans adapt the, the lyrics in a way that would be more prescient to our situation today. And in many cases, I didn't have to do a lot of changing at all. So you take a song called S. Brent, which means it's burning. And the lyric is, it's burning, S. Brent. Alice, everything in the ghetto is burning, you idiot. It literally says, Nebuch, literally says in the, in the lyric, you idiot. And I made this record in January of this year after having seen everything that we saw and the amount of anxiety and fear that we all shared has been just so palpable. And I felt that this message, it goes, it's burning. Everything is burning down, but your arms are crossed and you're standing around. The message is you can do something about it. It was about, a, it, the song was about a shtetl being destroyed. But the thing is, is that we have tools now. We can pick up a bucket, we can put out the fire. It's not a message of necessarily doom and gloom. It's a message about hope and about girding one's loins to be able to go and fight the fire. It is possible. And that particular message I felt was super, super important. And I also realized that the song is about the destruction of the shtetl. And so it's a murder ballad. It's about the murder of a shtetl. So in my musical setting, I wanted to set it in the musical setting of a traditional American murder ballad. So I wanted to give it that context as well. Mark Rubin, let's listen to It's Burning. standing round it's burning said it's burning said it's burning listen up you hold dimples pick up a bucket you got the tools it's burning where they're going round and taking names putting every home to the flames it's burning was any doubt well there ain't no fireman to put it out it's burning
swallowed up our town But your heads are bowed and you're staring down It's burning Where there ain't no rain, there ain't no flood We'll quench these flames with our blood It's burning Well, it's burning Said it's burning Everything is burning down But your arms are crossed and you're standing round It's burning And it's burning Said it's burning Listen up, you hog damn fools Pick up a bucket, you got the tools It's burning It's Burning, from Mark Rubin's new album, The Triumph of Assimilation. Let me talk about another song, because it, it, it kind of disturbs me, because it's a, a satirical song written by Cy Khan, and it, yeah. it almost like perpetuates the stereotype. So why did you include this song? Well, first off, Cy Khan has been such a good friend and a mentor to me for a long, long time. So when I went to put this album together, I asked him if he had anything for me. Was there a song he could write for me or something? And this is what he came to me with. And I got back to him and I said, Cy, uh, are you sure about this? And he said, oh yeah. And the way he sings it is like, he says that he sings it as a sing-along, if you can imagine. He sings it like a very, very nice little waltz, a very cute and quaint little waltz, and it's a sing-along. And he, he likes to, it's one of these songs that requires a little bit of explanation before you, before you lay it on someone. And it, it I, I think, I, I, I present it as, as an absurdist notion. It's, it's a Borat skit in three minutes is, is how I present it. And it's been played on the radio. I've been watching the radio tracking. It has, in fact, been played on the radio. So I'm really curious to know what the DJ is saying prior to uh, playing this particular number. Because, yeah, it, it does, in fact, sound in many respects like it's perpetuating these notions. But I think that it's canceled out by some of those lyrics. The problem with us is that we look so much like you. I hope that there's a turnaround, at, you know, in the end, in the in the end of these songs, you know, that, that there's if you follow these songs to their end, there is a turnaround. I, I hope it's humorous uh, and I hope that that comes through in the performance. I, I think with your introduction, it, it will be humorous. Here is a song written by Sai. So this is a new song by Sai Khan. Yes, Cy, this is this is like Sai uh, wrote this song. He gave it to me on this record, and uh, I just want to go on record. If you don't know who Cy Khan is, I want you to go Google him right now. Uh, Cy Khan is a wonderful human being, and I, I really appreciate that he uh, allowed me to put this on my record. Here's Mark Rubin's with Cy Khan's song, Unnatural Disasters. Flooding up in Nashville, it's boiling in Maine. 
Tornadoes in New Orleans, tsunamis in Spain. Why is this all happening? What's your best guess? What is the reason we're in such a mess? It's the Jews! It's always the Jews. We cause global warming and we give you the blues. Wherever we go, we're always bad news. Whatever goes wrong, it's always the Jews. Tell who's a Jew Cause some of us use names for us with It's not always easy to tell them when you see one So someone you like may turn out to be one It's the Jews, it's always the Jews We cause global warming and we give you the blues Wherever we go, we're always bad news Whatever goes wrong, it's always the Unnatural Disasters, Mark Rubin, Jew of Oklahoma. The new album is called The Triumph of Assimilation. As funny as that is, this is quite a serious album that you came out with, Mark. Your your purpose is, is much higher than just, uh, well, it is about assimilation. In many ways, it really is. I, I tend to feel, however, that my title, you know, I, that title, by the way, has been in my head for 20 years uh the this record has been in my head for 20 years uh in many respects but it's only now that i think i've been able to live life long enough and get my head together literally um i was diagnosed diagnosed with bipolar 2 
uh, about six or seven years ago and, you know, dialing in the meds and getting good counseling, you know, and, and a lot of this is, a lot of this has come out of that being able to distill one's thoughts finally. And then, you know, you're right. Uh, I don't make music without consequence. I, I want, I, I want things to be consequential. I have some very important things that I'd like to get across. Otherwise I would not make the record, you know, and I'm not really interested in a career. I don't think really someone puts out these records necessarily uh, because they're looking to advance one's career necessarily. I can, I can stay here in new Orleans and play banjo in jazz bands for the rest of my life and, and support myself or, you know, I have a part-time day job at the Museum of the Southern Jewish Experience now, for instance, and I, could, I would be perfectly happy to do that for the rest of my days. But these things, I think, are absolutely important, and they're inside me, and they need to come out, and I think that, uh, I think that they'll resonate. I think very strongly that these messages will resonate, and they're super important. Let me play a serious song. What's the background behind the murder of Leo Frank? Well, this is a tough one. This is a real tough one. Leo Frank was uh, worked at a pencil factory in Atlanta, Georgia. And um, it's, a, it's a tough and long story that uh, I think people should probably uh, do some research on. But I, was, uh, I made the mistake of uh, looking at the... Uh, there's, a, there's a song called uh, Little Mary Fagan very well-known song by a very beloved fiddler by the name of Fiddle and John Carson. And in the old time music scene, which I'm involved in, and I, you know, I have a lot of friends who play in the old time scene. A lot of those people are Jewish. There's a lot of Jewish people who operate in the old time, the modern old time scene, and they play a lot of music by Fiddle and John Carson. But what they probably don't know about Fiddle and John Carson is he was a raging anti-Semite. And that when when there was this show trial, uh, when they were trying to railroad uh, Leo Frank for this murder of Mary Fagan, John Carson would show up at the uh, at the trial and stood on the steps of the courthouse and made up songs for the people who had showed up, um, encouraging them to to lynch Frank literally made up songs while he was there and whipped up the frenzy of the crowd. And the truth is, is that they lynched Frank. They eventually did that. And in many ways, I wanted to show the culpability of this person and also tell this story that a lot of people don't know. A lot of people do not know this story. And I don't tell the story of the trial because that's been rehashed over and over again. I just wanted to show the grisly after effect of the trial and what that did to the Jewish community there in Atlanta and, uh, and in the South in particular. And for us Southern Jews, it's a, it's a tough story. And I don't think a lot of people know about it. And I, I tell the tale and it's a rough one and I apologize. Here is Mark Rubin with Murder of Leo Frank. Come gather ground people, a story I should tell I sing today of Leo Frank, it's a tale not known so well Well you may have heard the ballads, or you might have heard the songs 
about poor little Mary Fagan and how it was that she was wrong. Well, my story's not about the crime, nor about his so-called trial. Well, Leo Frank, the innocent, was found guilty and given time. Leo Frank is gone, but the memory lingers on. Convicted by all press accounts, railroaded by the court Where a thousand came from all around, for Frank's fate was made sport Well out on the courthouse steps, old John Carson can be heard Singing songs made right up on the spot, for the thousands gathered there He sang, hang that little Jew, let's hang that little Jew Hang that little Jew, he hanged that little Jew. On the 17th of August, it was on that fateful day, six cars filled up with angry men to the Midgeville prison came. Well, they drained the gas tanks of the cops, cut down the telephone wires, handcuffed the friendly warden, and with Frank they bid goodbye. Outside of Marietta, had a spot they did prepare. There's an old oak branch and a length of rope and a rickety old chair. Singing, they hung that little Jew. Where they hung that little Jew. They hung that little Jew. Where they hung that little Jew. And when the killing had been done, all the men they'd gathered round. To get a picture of themselves With Frank's body a-dangling down There were prominent politicians Policemen, sheriffs too The captains of local industry And the founder of the local scout troop With the Knights of Mary Fagan All the clansmen cried with glee Burned a cross up on Old Stone Mountain for all the world to see They're singing, they hung a little Jew Oh, we hung that little Jew Oh, they hung that little Jew Yeah, we hung that little Jew Where well, the Jews of old Atlanta Where they thought they'd had it made But thousands left old Georgia now For the safety of a northern state There'll be no menorah in your window, no more sukkah built outside. Them Jews that did not leave right off learned to hide it deep down inside. Oh, Leo Frank is gone, but his memory lingers on. For little Mary's Fagin song, John Carson, can we thank? But next time you're at services, say a cottage for Leo Frank. Mark Rubin with Murder of Leo Frank from the new album, The Triumph of Assimilation. Mark Rubin's... Uh, you call yourself the Jew of Oklahoma. Do you get a reaction from people when you say that? Yeah, pretty much. They go, uh, really? And I go, yeah, they were sad. They were happy to see me go. You know, <laughs> it's a, it comes from the old Yiddish greeting. And you would explain, you would say, my name is Mark, son of Robert, an educator, 
and then of Oklahoma. You know what I mean? Like, cause you know, Jews didn't have last names. They would just say what their name was, who their father was, what the profession was. So they would, they'd have to go on and on. So they would say, you know, Mark, son of Bob, an educator from Minsk. But you know what I mean? So there was like this amongst the Jewish musicians I used to hang out with. They, that was the joke. So I would, I would say, my name is Mark, son of Robert, educator, Jew of Oklahoma. So they, that was the joke. They go, oh, there's Mark, Jew of Oklahoma. So it kind of, it was like a little in joke. And so it was like a, it was like a, a name that stuck, but I thought it was appropriate for the project and for my solo show. And uh, you will admit, it's a little catchy. <laughs> it's very catchy. And uh, reading your uh, bio uh, in Wikipedia, you're, you're quite the innovator, playing tuba, playing bass, teaching bass, other instruments. How did you get uh, become proficient on the banjo? When did that start becoming to your life? Oh, well, I did mention I was bipolar, right? <laughs> 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 well, the, the fact is, is that... Uh, you know, I hung out with Danny Barnes for years, you know, who's one of the greatest banjo players, you know, who trods the earth right now. And true story, I got a banjo for my bar mitzvah. <laughs> I got some money for my bar mitzvah and I found a banjo at a, at, a, uh, at a garage sale. And I took it to the local music store and the guy who gave banjos les lessons there was Alan Mundy. Alan Mundy tuned my first banjo. He was and, a member of, was it Seldom Seen? He was a famous banjo player. Oh, yeah, you bet. Him and Byron Berline were, were teaching at, uh, at Peaches Music on Main Street. So I've been around some of the most famous banjo players ever and around banjo music. So it really it really spoke to me and it, and it caught on. And I really picked up the Clawhammer style, which I really, really, really adore. And uh, I've been studying it for a long time, just, just as a hobby and playing with friends. And, and it's... It's just one of the instruments that I, I got interested in. Look, the truth is, is that when I see people having fun playing music, man, I, I just don't want to be left out. And like, I don't care what kind of music it is, man. If I have to go learn another instrument to go join the party, man, I'll go and do it. Is that why you moved to New Orleans? Well, the truth is, is that I got priced out of Austin. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you know about Austin these days, but the tr real truth is, is I got priced out of Austin and New Orleans is a music city and you can still uh, ply a trade as a musician and, and make your way. And like I said, I'm a musician first. Uh, I'm a professional musician first. And so uh, I do pickup gigs with uh, New Orleans jazz bands. I do Cajun gigs on the side and I'm a member of a group called the Panorama Jazz Band. Uh, who, who actually are featured on one of the tracks of the record. They're featured on the Hanukkah track on the record. I'm just a hustling guy out there trying to make a living playing music. And I have this passion inside me for sharing these ideas and sharing this Yiddish poetry and sharing this Southern Jewish point of view about, you know, the world and tikkun alone, man. Tikkun alone, man. Well, Mark Rubin, it's out there now that you're a Jew, and uh, this is your direction. As far as folk music and bluegrass, is that behind you? you pretty, well, let, let's find out. I mean, the, I, this record debuted at number 14 on the Billboard bluegrass charts. I mean, what, what's that? I mean, how'd that happen? There's a Venu Malkanu. I believe this is the first time in human history that a Venu Malkanu and Good Shabbos made it to the bluegrass charts in America. I didn't ask for that. 
I just made this record and put it out there. Let's be honest. Let's between us and your listeners, my name alone is going to make that record show up in the trash pile in quite a lot of radio stations around the United States. Anti-Semitism is real. Xenophobia is real. In the bluegrass world, it exists. In the country world, it exists. In the folk world, it exists. And so I don't care. I am a fully formed person. I was born and raised in the South. I know what that looks like. And it created the person that I am. So you see before you, I mean, I'm 300 pounds, six foot one. I am what our people call a starker. I'm a big guy. I'm a Bela Kazakh. I can beat back the Cossacks at the doorway. So in the shtetl, that's my job, is when the Cossacks show up, I'm the guy with the axe handle. So my music represents that in a lot of respects. My music tends to be pugilistic. And as you well know, my music is not here to make any friends. It's not really here to make any friends. It's here to get a point across and to give heart to Jewish people. And on the other hand, to explain to non-Jewish people what it is we go through and to maybe get them to think a little bit about their behavior. And on the other hand, to give heart to those of us of our tribe and let us know that just like it, just like it's always been, we're going to do, we're going to do okay. If we band together, if we band together. I, I've come across some bluegrass musicians who I heard were anti-Semitic. Should I play their music? Well, that's, that's a personal decision. Um, Hey, I like the writing of H.L. Mencken, but uh, he was a raging anti-Semite. So what I like to do is go, one of my favorite anti-Semites, <laughs> H.L. Mencken wrote, um, you know, so that's that's kind of how I approach that. I mean, um, I wouldn't. I wouldn't personally. Um, I don't play Wagner. You know what I mean? Um, that's it's really terrible. It's really terrible when you see people's true nature. You know, when they when they uh, when they just lay it on the line. But that's 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 got to be everybody's individual call. But I wouldn't do it. I mean, that's what I'm here to do. I'm here to expose a lot of that and uh, and to call it out and uh, let people make their own decisions about it. Mark Rubin, Jew of Oklahoma, the new album, The Triumph of Assimilation. Let's finish with one more song. What's what's a what's a happy song? What's a good song to end on? A happy song, a happy song. This is for everybody out there who's Shomer Shabbos and, uh, and, and keeps kosher. I want to I wanna send this one because I know there's a lot of people listening to Miami who probably keep kosher. Um, my dad used to say that the Oklahoma way of keeping kosher was to take your bacon off your cheeseburger. So, uh, so this song actually has some quotes from my dad in it, and it's, it's called Down South Kosher. How to keep kosher when you're down south. Mark Rubin, thank you so much for the music, and thank you much, so much for the interview. Thank you, man. Down south, way to the south, keeps the southern belly well satisfied. But if you 
you're gonna stay Jewish, well, it better suffice to see Bacon is a garnish, ham hock is a spice Tell me, Mrs. Cohen, why's your trolling tonight? I use bacon as a garnish, ham hock is a spice If you wanna eat kosher, gotta work real hard Cause everything here's got a little bit of lard Make accommodations when you live in the South Don't ask too many questions about what goes in your mouth don't want to stick out, you want to get along So eat that crawfish and sing my little song Suffice to see bacon as a garnish and hammock as a spice. 